0: Good morning. Let's so open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 39, entitled The Morning's Message The History of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is special indeed. Ezekiel 5 5 says, Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem, and I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. In other words, Jerusalem is the center of this world as far as the Lord is concerned and of course the heart of Jerusalem is none other than the Temple Mount which will be part of our study this morning Um, let's go back to where Paul read for us earlier he bravely tackled verse 3 and I'm going to skip it completely (laughs) now in the ninth year of Zedekiah the king of Judah in the tenth month Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. And in the 11th year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, and this is important, on the ninth day of the month, we'll come back and talk about that later, which is the ninth of Av, the city was captured. It was the princes of the king of Babylon that captured the city. And the rest of the kings were with the king of Babylon. Now, how is that for jumping over names? Come on, you want to try it? (laughs) And so it was when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw them that they fled, and they went out of the city by night between the two walls, and they went out by the way of the plain. But the Chaldean army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had captured him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to Riblah, in the land of Hamath where he pronounced judgment on them. And then the king of Babylon killed his sons, the sons of Zedekiah, before his eyes in Riblah. And the king of Babylon also killed the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. And the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people with fire and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And then Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the captain, Zadan, I should say, the captain of the guard, carried away captives to Babylon, the remnant of the people who remained in the city, and those who defected to him with the rest of the people who remained. But Zaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah the poor people who had nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Uh, this fall of Jerusalem is dated the 9th of Av. It was Solomon's temple, and Herod's temple um, also, we'll get to this morning when we get to Luke 19, was also destroyed exactly on the same day, on the 9th of, of Av. The fall of Jerusalem here is what we call the beginning of the times of the Gentile. It's a real milestone in the Bible because with this event marked the beginning of something that we call uh, the times of the Gentiles. I'll just quote Luke 21:24 Concerning Israel, um, Jesus said that they will fall by the edge of the sword, they will be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So there's an end point to the times of the Gentiles. The beginning point is in chapter 39 on the 9th of Av. The Jews were dispersed and it began a a, a season that we call the times of the Gentiles. Now there's a little debate. Not all Bible teachers are in agreement on when the end of the time of the Gentiles is going to occur. Some believe that it took place in June of 1967 during the Six-Day War, when um, the Israeli troops broke through, had access to um, the Wailing Wall, took it, even took the temple site, um, but the general in charge at the time, his name was Moshe Dayan, famous Israeli general, and he didn't want to stir the pot too much, so he gave the temple mount back to uh, those that they were, fighting against and it's remained in Muslim hands to this day Uh, so those Bible teachers who say that the times of the Gentiles ended in in 67 during the six day war I don't fall in that camp. I don't see it happening till Jesus reigns at at the beginning of the millennial reign and um, even during the time of the tribulation Of course, the Antichrist will be the one who is in power. But finally, at this time, the people realize that everything that Jeremiah, the true prophet, has been speaking now for 30 full years, he's right. And they realize that the false prophets, Judy told me this morning as I was going through my notes, she Googled something, and she said, the Lord said four times in the book of Jeremiah, I have not sent them. Uh, these false prophets. that is it's mentioned four times throughout the book of uh, Jer- Jeremiah. So finally the realization sets in. Jeremiah is a true prophet of God. And um, there were the false prophets. And they were put to shame. And uh, should have been stoned as false prophets. Now this morning what I'd like to do. Is uh, look at our study from two views. One actually the history of of the city of Jerusalem in one, and two, the judgments that the city of Jerusalem has gone through throughout time. And to begin, we need to go back to the beginning, so let's go to Genesis chapter 14, and we'll find the very first place that um, Jerusalem is mentioned in the scriptures. Genesis 14, let me set this up a little bit. Abraham, Three hundred and eighteen men goes to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been taken, and he was successful and now he 's returning and is making his way back home and that 's basically verses one through sixteen that he brought back all the goods, and um, as he 's returning um, we read in verse 18 that he comes by this city and there's a man there in verse 18, we'll pick it up in 18, then Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And this would have been the earliest re- recording for Jerusalem and it's first mentioned here with this king who brought out bread and wine and was priest of the most high God and he blessed him and he said, blessed be Abraham of the most high, possessor of heaven and earth, And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he gave him a 10th of all. Abraham ties to this man who is not only the king of, Salem means peace. So he's a king of peace, but he's also a priest of the most high God. Now this isn't acceptable in Judaism. You can be a king. David was a king, but he wasn't a prophet. And so you could be one or the other. This person, Melchizedek, is unique. And it's interesting to me, I had to smile a little bit this morning because what he brought out to Abraham gives us a clue of who this person really is because he brings out bread and wine. And of course, Paul was reading for us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we're to remember Jesus through what? The bread and the wine. The wine. We, we call this, um, um, Bible teachers, we call it a Christophanes. And Melchizedek is mentioned not only here, but in Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. I'll quote it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord has sworn he will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, in contrast, Aaron and the Levites were the ones who would reign as either high priests or in the priesthood. That was not the order of Melchizedek, a different one. Now, when the writer of the Hebrews, nine times uh, Melchizedek is mentioned in the book of Hebrews, and The the writer is making the argument that um, Jesus is different from the Levitical tribes. He's not after that order. And let me just quote some verses from um, the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, blessed him to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being first translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And he's without father, without mother, without a genealogy. Okay, think that through what I just said. No father, no mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but the Son of God remains a priest continually. The reason we know it's a Christophanes is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are the only ones who have always been eternal. The angels were created. Good place for an amen. Something different with Melchizedek. Hebrews 5, 6, and he says, In another place you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now what he's trying to explain to the Hebrews, they, they need to know that they have a mediator a go-between, their high priest. That's what the high priest did, he interceded for the people. So now the writer of Hebrews is saying, we're done with that, we have a new high priest, not after the order of of the Levites, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, who has no beginning of days, he's always been. And so here we have what we call a Christophanes. It is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus himself, giving us all kinds of hints and clues with the bread and the wine, and then the rest is filled in for us in the book of Hebrews. All right, here's the first place that is mentioned. Let's move down a little bit farther into history. Let me take you to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 11. I'll give you a moment to get there. And while you're turning, um, we have here the conquest of, of the Jebusite city by King David. And what I'm going to do is read the first nine verses here. Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in times past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. Then they anointed David king over Israel according to all the words of the Lord by Samuel. And David and all the men went to Jerusalem which is Jubas. So before uh, the, the Jebusites named it after them, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. Then the inhabitants of Jubas said to David, You shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said, Whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first, and he became chief. Then David dwelt in a stronghold. Therefore they called this they called it the city of David. And he built the city around it from the Milo, which just a little quick sidetrack. Most of the excavating that's being done recently in Jerusalem is the city of David. Uh, when I first began going, um, it was wasn't being touched at all. Well, we they found the Milo, which is the, the, basically the city gates to David's city. And um, what I'm going to show you in just a second here is uh, they found a pool of Siloam during this period of time and they repaired the rest of the city. Then David went up and it became great and the Lord of hosts was with him. Uh, not enough detail, so I need to take you to 2 Samuel. I want to go back now. Right before the book of Kings, the last chapter, 2 Samuel. Samuel um, chapter 5, did I say 24? Chapter 5 right now. And we have the same account, but more detail here is being given. And I'm gonna ask the um, guys in the sound room to put up uh, the shaft, the water shaft. And it's similar to what we read in Chronicles, but let's pick it up in Second Samuel 5, verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites and the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come up here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. You're not strong enough to take our city. Uh, and David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the city of David. Now, David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft, and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the stronghold and called the city of David. Then David built all around from the Milo, the gates, and inward, so David went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. Now, uh, what you're looking at here is we are actually entering into, oh, a couple hundred feet from the surface we're walking down. And we're actually making our way to the Milo, which every time I go back, they've, they've just made it so much more realistic the way it would have looked. And eventually we end up at a place that's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And this would have been built by King Hezekiah, Um, during the time that the Assyrians were laying siege against Jerusalem. It was a tunnel. So we begin at the very, very top with the presentation of the city of David and all the work that's being done. They're finding so much more about the city of David right now. But in order to get to Hezekiah's tunnel, we have to pass this place right here. And what it is, during David's time, they would bring the water up they would lower buckets down, and that's how they would uh, fetch their water for, for the day. And this picture is an A spot. What we're reading in Scripture, when David says, Who- whoever's the guy that will climb up the water shaft and take the city, because it couldn't get in because it was fortified greatly, he says, I'll make you head guy, top dog. And um, so here's a picture of it. You can't see all of it because it goes down and they have lights showing it going down. But talk about the Bible proving itself over and over again. Um, David granted terms of peace with the remaining Jebusites. When he took the city, apparently because he made a friend friendly deal with Araha, the Jebusite, to purchase land for building the temple. We'll get to that in just a little bit. The Jebusites remain in submission to Israel and were part of the labor force that Solomon would later use on the building project. But um, we'll be walking that in a couple of months and making our way down from there. We end at the Pool of Siloam, which has just recently been discovered within the last 10 years or so. All right, enough history. Let's switch gears and talk about the judgments and wars against Jerusalem. And we need to go back to our text for that this morning. Instead of 39, let's look at the last verse of chapter 38. 38 verse 28 tells us, so Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison until the day that Jerusalem was taken, which is the ninth of Oz, And he was there when Jerusalem was taken. And again, I want to point out verse two, the ninth of Av. Um, The complete description, as Jeremiah is not laid out in a chronological order, is when we get to the final chapters in 52, and I'll just quote this. And um, it's one of those places where Bible critics sometimes uh, say the Bible will contradict itself. Let's just take it, Um, grab the bull by the horns here and just read it and see what it says. So I'm quoting Jeremiah 52.12, a more detailed um, event of when Nebuchadnezzar actually took Jerusalem. I'm reading Jeremiah 52.12. Now on the fifth month, on the 10th day of the month, which is the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar the captain of the guard who served the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, that all the houses of the great he burned with fire, and all the armies of the Chaldeans who were with the captains broke down all the walls of Jerusalem all around. So here you have it on the 10th. I see no problem with it at all. If you're going to set the entire city on fire, which they did, it's going to burn more for one day. It was set on the ninth. Evidently, it burned into the 10th. And I think it's as as simple as that. And um, um, we have this major milestone that's the beginning of what we call the times of the Gentiles. This judgment, as we study the book of Jeremiah, this is what he's been saying for 30 years. And then they had the false prophet saying just the opposite, don't worry about a thing. But finally, it happens and um, this is a major moment in the history of the city of Jerusalem. Another judgment came, and not for this one, uh, because of David's sin. And I want you to turn with me to Second Samuel, chapter 24. I'll give you a moment to get there. It's going to be right before First Kings. This is the last chapter of Second Samuel. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to lay it out for you. Evidently, Joab was the guy who uh, scurried up that water shaft because he's the commander-in-chief. And uh, David, it says, um, it says, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. And so, what we have here is David going to his main general. He says, I got a job for you. What do you want, Lord? Well, I want you to go and, and find out how many men that we have that are able to be fitted up and um, count them and number them. And let's see how powerful and how much strength we have in our military. And in verse 9, Job gave the number of the people to the king and there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And as soon as David hears the numbers, we think, what's the big deal? Doesn't any military want to know what capacities they have or don't have? Not if you're David. Not if you're your whole life you would write in the psalm that the Lord is my strength and my strong tower. I will not put my confidence in in men or horses or arms. That's what David was all about. He was the example. And Joab pleaded with him, saying, David, don't do this thing. And they argued about it. But David was king, and Joab was just a general. David won. Go do the job. And so off he goes. He comes back with the numbers. But as soon as he heard, as soon as he heard in verse 10, it says David's hearts convicted him that he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And I pray, Lord, now take the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Basically, it's important to get this because the lesson of, of walking by faith and not by sight and not trusting in your 401K or whatever it is you trust in, anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ is having another God, if I might put it bluntly. Good place for an amen. And here's David, my hero. This is a more grievous sin than the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Uh, With that consequence, there was one baby that was lost. Because of this sin, 70,000 people are going to pay for David's sin. And he said, Lord, what I've done was wrong. Will you forgive me? And he says, well, David, I'm going to give you three choices. You get to pick what judgment you want. And you choose. Do you want seven years of famine? Or shall you flee from your enemies for three months? Or shall there be a, a plague that takes the land for th- three days? And David said, Lord, don't put me in a, <laughs> the judgment of men. You're the Lord. You decide. You choose. So we read... In verse 14, and David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Please let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time from Dan to Beersheba. That's as far north and as far south in the land. And 70,000 men of people died. Now, the last time I drove by our population for Appleton, it's right around that number. So imagine, put it in perspective. You know, the whole city gone. Why? Because David, like Moses, really spoils everything that David stood for and encouraging people until this moment came, and it's really how Second Samuel ends. But remember that... Um, um, This, in verse 16, David actually sees the instrument that God is using to bring the judgment. It's in verse 16, and when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it's enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of this Jebusite, Eriah the Jebusite. So again, David allowed some of these guys to stay alive. And now, since that's where the judgment stopped, David wants to make a sacrifice. He wants to thank the Lord for um, forgiving his sin. He accepted his punishment. But now he wants to worship. He wants to get back on track, getting his eyes off the strength of men and back on the Lord so he goes up to this Jebusite and he said, I want to buy this piece of property. That piece of property is what we call the Temple Mount to this day. And he goes up to him and this Jebusite said, you're the king, go ahead, use it. Take your, um, um, make your sacrifice uh, and um, it's yours, if you want it, you can have it. And then we read that David um, uh, David said in verse 24 to this offer, he says, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which has cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Now, when the Lord asked at Passover to give a lamb, he said, Make sure it's without blemish. I want the cream of the crop. I, got the, I want the best that you have, one that you treasure when you're giving to the Lord. I don't want one that's blind and lame and ready to die anyway. I don't want that kind of offering. So here David says, I'm not gonna take this for free. This is gonna cost me something. And he he purchased what we call the Temple Mount today because it was an elevated area. The city of David is all downhill. And at the very top of the hill would have been this threshing floor where they would throw in their There are wheat in the air, and the chaff and the wheat would be separated. And he bought it for 50 pieces of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. So here we have um, a failure of David. I like that because I fail. You like that because you fail. And yet, the Lord, um, with the sacrifice, there's forgiveness, and with the sacrifice, there's a part of history that's now the most sought-after piece of real estate in the entire universe. It's called the Temple Mount. It's in Jerusalem. All right, that was a judgment on Jerusalem. Let's fast forward to Jesus' time and look to Luke chapter 19, New Testament. Luke 19 Use guys here at Calvary Chapel, Appleton. I just want everybody to know that I'm from Wisconsin that's listening live stream. So use guys that are turning to Luke chapter 19. What we have here is what we call Palm Sunday. The date is April 6, 32 AD. And just as Jeremiah for 30 years foretold the destruction of Jerusalem and it happened, here Jesus in Luke 19 foretells the destruction of Jerusalem 38 years before it actually happened. Let's pick it up with uh, verse 19, verse 42, saying, if you had known, even you especially in this year day, God bless you, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so Jesus, um, at this time, the city of Jerusalem before it fell, looked like this. I'm going to put a a picture of the city of Jerusalem. And when it comes up, I'm going to walk you through this. This is what the city of Jerusalem would have looked like in Jesus' day. That's the Temple Mount area right there. It is built, it took three years of research before they began putting anything together. It's built one-fiftieth to scale. So if you would magnify those stones that are about like this big by this big, by 50, then you would have a very accurate um, description of what this looked like. For many years, in the early years, they had it at a place called the Holy Land Hotel, and we would visit it there. But then they decided um, they wanted to have it at the Jerusalem Museum where the Dead Sea Scrolls are. There's um, a museum And over the years, I watched them as they cut out big sections of it and move it piece by piece by piece. So they moved it from the Holy Land Hotel to the Jerusalem Museum, which is called the Scroll of the Book. And that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can actually view them in the museum. And this is a part of now the exhibit. We always go there. We walk around it. And um, like I said, it took longer for them to research it than they did to put it all together. So, this city is destroyed in 70 A.D. And Israel, afterwards, the Jewish people were dispersed all over the world. Now, let's make some distinctions here. (coughs) Excuse me. We don't want to ever confuse the return of the Jews back to the land. They were clearly driven to one nation, Jeremiah said, Babylon. And then you're going to come back after 70 years. But Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 says, It will come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Syria and Egypt and Cush and Elam and Shinar and from the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcast of Israel gather together the dispersed of Judah from all four corners of the earth. So the second time we have here Israel Jewish people being forced out of the land and driven to the uttermost parts of the world. Now here is where Israel and Jerusalem in particular and the Jewish people it's a modern-day miracle because no ethnic group has ever been removed from their land, survived as a nationality after just a couple generations. They're assimilated into that society. Today, you won't find any Jebusites. You won't find any Philistines. You won't find any Hittites. might find some termites here and there, but no other, nothing else. They have ceased to exist. And right now, Leonard Nimoy, Spock, before he died, um, uh, had and made a movie called Israel is a Miracle. Did you know both Spock and Kirk are both Jews? They are. And this thing here that I'm faking because I can't do it the right way like this, you know where that comes from? That's what the high priest did when they prayed and blessed the offering. And Spock worked it into the set. Live long and prosper. No, well, it actually comes from the high, high priest. Actor Leonard Nimoy, my birthday buddy, is still speaking about the miracle of Israel in a movie he narrated not, not long before his death. The movie shown on television from coast to coast is called The Miracle of Israel and connects the strange and seemingly supernatural events surrounding the Jewish state's founding. Israel and Jerusalem is a modern-day miracle. Now listen carefully. God gave the land of Israel to Abraham and no one else and to his descendants. Genesis 35:12, The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your descendants, the Jewish people, and I will give you this land, the land of Israel, belongs to the Jewish people and I want everybody in our fellowship to know where we stand when it comes to being a supporter of the Jewish people and Israel or not being supported. And um, we do not believe that the promises that God gave to Israel are null and void and we inherited them, that's called replacement theology. God has a purpose and a plan but let's be clear about it. The land belongs to Israel and not to Muslims. All right, I'm going to give you the proof because I know I'm stirring the pot and I'm not being politically corrected in any way, shape, or form right now. So, five facts to prove Jerusalem was never a Muslim holy city. Number one, the Quran. While Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible over 500 times, It is never mentioned in the Quran, not once. Many Muslims claim that this is a lie and claim that the word aliyash means Jerusalem. Aliyash literally means the farthest mosque, and in no way does it mean Jerusalem. The Quran passage that talks about the night journey of Muhammad to the farthest mosque took place in the year 621 while the mosque in Jerusalem was not built until 705. They have a problem. CE, which means to whichever mosque Mohammed flew, it certainly was not the one in Jerusalem. Reason number two, Muslims turn their back on the Temple Mount when they pray, while Jews only face Jerusalem, no matter where you are. You can be flying in a plane over there and you'll see the Orthodox facing towards Jerusalem during their morning prayers, figuring out which way uh, is Jerusalem and which way to pray to. Jews only face Jerusalem and while they mention Jerusalem in every prayer and when they say grace after meals, the Muslims do not consider Jerusalem as a holy city ever. Would you stick your backside towards a place that was holy to you? Reason number three, Jerusalem was never an Arab capital. While King David made Jerusalem the capital of the land of Israel, never in the history of the world was Jerusalem ever a capital city of any Arab country. Certainly not one called Palestine, which never existed. And by the way, there is no such thing as a Palestinian. Did you know that? It's fictitious. There's no tribe or people group called Palestinians. Um, No single Arab in the history of the world held Jerusalem as its capital. Number five, it was a Jewish one. No one has ever disputed the fact that King David was the first to make Jerusalem the capital city. No one disputes that David's son Solomon built the first Jewish temple in Jerusalem. No one disputes the second temple also was built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. No one disputes the fact that the Romans uh, ransacked the temple, slaughtered the Jews, and killed them out of Israel, that was 70 A.D., and no one disputes the Muslims forcible conquered and occupied Jerusalem and built their mosque on the place on the Jewish temple. And it's on the far end. They have the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and in the center of it they have what's called the Dome of the Rock. And that's the way it sits now, but not for long. Let's move on to the future of Jerusalem, and I need you to turn to the book of Revelation, Chapter 16, and as we talk about the judgments against Jerusalem, this is the final one. This is the final judgment, and it is Gentile. Matter of fact, let me read the Lord's perspective of Jerusalem at this time. If you're taking notes, I'm quoting Revelation 11, verse eight, about the death of the two witnesses. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt where our Lord was crucified. So as far as the Lord is concerned, he sees it because the Antichrist has set up the abomination of desolation, certainly Gentile, where our Lord was crucified, clearly the city of Jerusalem here is in view. But if you're at chapter 16, I wanna look at verses 17 through 21. This will be the final fall, and the final judgment of Jerusalem before the Lord establishes his kingdom. Let's pick it up in verse 17. This is the end of the bowl judgments. We've gone through the seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and now we're at the end of the seven and last bowl judgment, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunders and lightnings and it was a great earthquake, such a mighty earthquake, which had not occurred since men were on the earth. And now the great city was divided into three parts. That would be Jerusalem. And the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Every island fled away, and mountains were not found. Great hail from heaven fell upon men, hailstones about the weight of a talent, 75 to 100 pounds. And man blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. Jerusalem was wiped out. It's divided in three sections, and then it's plummeted with these hailstones from heaven. When you get to chapter 17 and 18, it's really detail that's being added during um, the tribulation period. So it's more information after that. All right, so that's the, the final judgment of the worldly time of the Gentiles and um, let's begin to wind up by this morning by talking about the new Jerusalem. If we're gonna have a study on the history of Jerusalem from Salem, it climaxes at the end with our future home, which is called the new Jerusalem. Now, this is a promise. Uh, the first, first three chapters of the book of Revelation are in red letters, when you start chapter 4, verse 1, it turns to black letters because he's speaking to the church in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And in Revelation 3:12, here's one of his promises. He says, he who overcomes. Now, who is an overcomer? An overcomer is someone who just sticks it up. That, that great verse that said, he who has begun a good work in you, he's going to finish it. Just don't turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. Good place for an amen. It's getting late, gang. Uh, as it says in Hebrews, as you see the day approaching, more fellowship, more Bible study, more, 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 not less, less, less. And um, unfortunately, that's what we see in the nation worldwide is less, less of that. But here he makes this promise. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Jerusalem has a new name. You're going to have a new name, and Jesus is going to have a new name. Interesting. Jesus' promise the night before he was taken. In John 14, he said, in my father's house, oh, there's many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. let's look at Revelation um, 21. We won't read much of this. None of God's kids are ever gonna be homeless. What we're about to read is where you're gonna spend eternity. People have all kinds of weird concepts of what heaven's gonna be like. We have no idea what heaven's gonna be like. You know why? Because verse one says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Now, let's, we want the facts, we want to know what it's gonna be like, but you need to look at this as more of a, of a, a love relationship um, and your honeymoon suite, so to speak, forever and ever and ever. Coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death nor pain. For the former things have passed away. Yesterday, In men's prayer, we started the Gospel of Mark. And in Mark 2, these were some of the verses that we read concerning John the Baptist and fasting. It says that the disciples of John, the Baptist and the Pharisees, they, they are fasting. Then they came and said to him, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they're not fasting? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom, they cannot fast. He was referring to himself and his disciples as his bride. It wasn't this time of of, uh, joy. But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and, and then they will fast in those days. But I like the fact that our city And the center of the city is simply nothing in comparison to what we want to read between the lines here, the romance. The love that Jesus has for you as a bride has for her bridegroom and looks forward to that day. And that's the context that's really being put into. Certainly that's what Jesus said concerning himself. He says, well, the bridegroom is here. They're not going to fast. And But when I'm gone, then there'll be time for that, but, but not now. So this morning, from the beginning with Melchizedek and Abraham before Jerusalem was Jerusalem, it was Salem, to when it was destroyed in Jeremiah's time, chapter 39, when it was destroyed in Jesus' time in 70 A.D., um, we find that Jeremiah 39 and the fall of Jerusalem is a major marker in God's word. But no, as we close, I'm reading Hebrews 12:22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an uncountable company of angels. All that to say this game, we got a glorious future set ahead for us. And uh, how much persecution we're gonna have to put up with as the world gets worse and worse like we are reading in Psalm 12 this morning. We look around and there's violence all over the place. It's not gonna get better. It's only gonna get worse. But there is a beautiful light at the end of this tunnel. Good place for an amen. God's, God says he has prepared an escape route for his people. And when that's all said and done, um, and we come back to reign. He's been working on your apartment for the last 2,000 years. I'm anxious to see, see what mine looks like. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we continue through the book of Jeremiah, we hit this milestone, the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. Lord, we're living in the time of the Gentiles, but we know that when all is said and done as we read the final couple chapters of your word, that you're going to make all things new. You're going to keep your promise that if you go, you're going to prepare a place for us. And you call this place Jerusalem, New Jerusalem. And we will abide there, as your word says, forever and ever and ever. So we agree with the closing, last two verses of the Bible, where your promise was, Surely I'm coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.